Welcome to the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast, where we explore popular practices, songs, and ideas in the modern church world in the light of Sola Scriptura and Tota Scriptura. I'm Cody Fields, the president of WestminsterEffects.com. You can go buy stuff for your guitar at WestminsterEffects.com. Make sure you join the discussion at the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast Lounge on Facebook and subscribe and comment, share the show. Hey, do this. Share a screenshot of you listening to this in your Instagram or Facebook story. Share the love. Uh, Lutheran John is not joining us today. He's got some more things, like a loser. But in person, we do have. This is Bradley Cox, uh, pastor at Resurrection Church in Greer, South Carolina. Happy to be on episode 199. 199. Next time is 200. It's fantastic. That That is... Uh, that's the sign of a long-tenured podcast at this point, right? Yeah, for real. <laughs> like it's that's been great. That's basically four years. Um, well, four years worth of weeks in terms of that, but we've missed some weeks, so it has been four years. Um, so That's hard to believe. Yeah, it really, really is. Uh, but then you look at stuff like uh, Christ the Center with Reformed Forum, and they're like in the 2000s or something like that. Wow. They've just been doing it for so long. Uh, those guys are veterans. Go listen to Crisis Center, by the way. That's our recommendation for today. Mm-hmm. The main topic today. Um, so, are you recovered from Sunday? <laughs> I was exhausted, man. I'm not. I'm serious. I was exhausted. One guy in the church said, when when I got done in the first service, he said, uh, "I'm exhausted." And Bradley did all the work. <laughs> that was uh, that was Bob, right? That was Bob. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so we were in. You know, we're we're in the book of Luke, just plowing straight through, and we're in Luke 17, and this week, you finished off Luke 17, starting with verse 20 and going through the end of the chapter in verse 37. That is not an easy text. No, it's not. Um, it, there's a lot of misunderstandings with it. There's a lot of assumptions that people come uh, with this text. And you've actually already kind of done something similar. I think it was Luke 12, where you're mm-hmm. like, I'm pretty sure this isn't you know, an end times thing. And you effectively had the same approach with 17. Yes. So when you have a... I think this one was tougher than 12. Very much so. Um, so how does one go about preparing for something that tough? Well, I I, mean, I don't know if I have like an easy sort of concise uh, method to it, but I can tell you that I'm so thankful for our team of elders here. Yeah, like, it, which is a recurring theme these days. <laughs> so thankful. I mean, we spent quite a bit of time wrestling with this portion of Luke 17. Um, and then, I, you know, coming out of those elder meetings <clears> – <throat> I think we agreed that the primary focus, at least, of Jesus' words there is not on his second coming or Mm -hmm. the rapture of the church, as some people might understand that, the great catching away uh, or the fulfillment of the kingdom or the end of all things. I think we had pretty solid agreement that that was not the primary focus. Mm -hmm. One of the things we talked about is that there are – at times when Jesus – 
speaks of things like this, especially when he's speaking prophetically, there is an overarching kind of uh, pattern to redemptive history. Yeah. And, and certainly when you come to Luke 17, there are pointers. There are hints mm-hmm. toward the second coming and if you believe in the rapture of the church, great catching away, the fulfillment of the kingdom. And, and when you say that. that, you're not you're not advocating like a double fulfillment approach. No. Of this happened in AD 70, and this particular thing will be fulfilled again at some future time, which doesn't make a whole lot. That approach has never made a lot of sense to me. Like, if it's double, then why not triple, quadruple? No, I don't mean that at all. What right. I mean is, is, in Luke 17, Jesus talks about the days, plural, of the Son of Man. Mm-hmm. He talks about days after the days of the Son of Man. Mm-hmm. He says to the disciples, the days, plural, are coming. So, And by days, I think he means a span of time. That's pretty easy. Yeah, <clears throat> The days are coming when you're going to long desire the days of the Son of Man. But in between those two things is the day of the Son of Man. Mm-hmm. So a, a definitive, decisive day separates the days of the Son of Man and the days when the disciples are going to long for the days of the Son of Man. Now, whatever you do with that, it doesn't take much biblical um, attentiveness to see that there is a bit of a pattern. And Jesus acknowledges that in Luke 17 yep. when he says, as it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Lot, there was a span of time. But then came the day of Noah mm-hmm. when the flood started, the door of the ark was shut, or the day of Lot when fire and brimstone rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah. There, there's a pattern there in redemptive history where God gives people time. There, there's there's a span of time. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a there's a space of mercy uh, by God, and then comes a definitive day. That if you look at Luke 17, and I think in Matthew 24, the common theme of that day, or the day of the Son of Man, the day of Noah, the day of Lot, etc., is that that day includes judgment, salvation for some, and carnage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like that's what I said on Sunday. That that's what I mean by there's a there's a kind of an overarching pattern. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we began to wrestle with is that this seems to be Jesus talking directly to his disciples about something that's near to them in terms of time. Mm. And yep. I think you have to do something with that. I think you have to acknowledge that. And granted, when when Jesus talks about the day that the Son of Man will be revealed. There's question marks. Like, what does that mean? Right. And how would AD 70 be a day when the Son of Man is revealed? I think those are questions you have to ask. And particularly when when you understand that most people in this part of the country, uh, just by the water that they swim in, most of their church lives growing up are kind of default dispensational they just kind of have that in the back of their mind yes um which again isn't heretical we're we're, we would never say that uh but it's just kind of in the atmosphere in churches around here for the most part and so you kind of have to be patient with in your preaching approach with people who are 
locked onto that of, well, yeah, we're longing for the days of the son of man when they're pushing all that into the future or, yes. or, or something of the sort. And, and, and you asked me, like, how do I go about a tough text like this? Really, the, fir the first thing that I try to do, which is what I, I, I encourage the church with this on Sunday, don't back the dump truck of everything you think you know or you've heard about the second coming or the rapture or you know the end of all things into a text like Luke 17. Mm -hmm. I, I the first thing I try to do for myself is read it with fresh eyes. Mm -hmm. And when I read it with when I read Luke 17, you know, particularly um, verse 22, and I just go, all right, I'm going to pretend like I don't know anything. I'm going to pretend like I, I'm just there with the disciples and I'm listening to Jesus say this. The first thing that jumped out at me was when Jesus says in verse 22, the days are coming when you will desire or long to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And, and I thought to myself, that doesn't make sense for Jesus to be talking about the rapture because mm -hmm. if, if, if the rapture has occurred and I am in heaven with Jesus, let's right. say, right. I don't think I'm longing for anything in the past. Yeah. Which says to me, he must, the days that he says are coming must be near to them in terms of time, mm -hmm. something they are going to experience. Yep. And so if you take that and then just start to slowly, methodically walk through Jesus's words, it starts to make sense that he is definitely talking about something near in terms of time. Now, another thing that I think makes Luke 17 challenging, you know, I, I'm a guy that's going to argue for literary independence sure. among the Gospels, mm -hmm. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and by that you mean? I, by that I mean I don't think I have to have Matthew in order to read and understand Luke well. Right. But... They're meant to be read together, but you don't have to... I don't. I, right. I can study Luke 17, and I can just live in what... Luke says, mm -hmm. and I can come away with truth and revelation that's not going to uh, contradict anything else in the other Gospels. Yes. However, when it comes to this text, I do think Matthew 24 is very helpful. Yeah. Because there, and, and, and again, I, I feel like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but I found myself wanting to pull on, as I was working through this and just struggling with it, wanting to pull on Matthew 24 because there's a couple of details in there. I think it's the mm -hmm. same interchange, the same wording, the same language, probably most likely occurred at the same time. It's just Matthew's account is a little different. Mm -hmm. you know, and, I th and you get more of the same in a couple of chapters in Luke 21. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and so, so have fun with that because yeah, right. it's like the whole chapter. <laughs> so, but, but Matthew starts with the account of Jesus' disciples pointing out the temple to him. Mm -hmm. And he mentions the destruction of the temple. Yep. And then in verse 34, I think, he says this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Yep. So you have to do something with that, and that's what then led me to, I guess, become – I told the church on Sunday that I was going to stop somewhere short of being emphatic, mm -hmm. but I think I was pretty emphatic. I think Luke 17 is a prophetic announcement from Jesus about the destruction of the temple and the end of the temple order 
uh, yep. in AD 70 yep. uh, because of what he's going to accomplish. And, that, and, and you look at the historical details of that day. It's insane. It is insane, and it is insane to imagine how these words in Luke 17 and in Matthew 24 would have been so helpful, so potent, as these disciples actually lived through that. Mm -hmm. And they look back on Jesus' words, and I think went, this is the day he was talking about. Yep. It's time to run. Yep. Which was another clue why... I don't think it's about the rapture of the second coming. Is that if it is about the rapture of the second coming, why in the world would he tell them to run on that day? <laughs> if, Flee. If, if this is a supposed secret rapture, right. you're just getting yanked out. Mm-hmm. Or if, as, as we would more prefer anyway, is if Jesus just comes back and the resurrection of the dead occurs, mm-hmm. then the dead are resurrected and that's it. That's it. There, you have the eschaton there <laughs> there's no need to flee and and jesus is explicit when he's when he says um talks about the day the son of man is revealed and then he says on that day mm-hmm. don't let the one come off the roof and gather up his stuff get don't, out of town get out of town get out of here and historically what happened was there were Christians who obeyed. They they mm-hmm. they heeded those words and they survived. Yeah. But one point one million Jews did not, and another hundred thousand or so were taken captive. And you you read from Sproul's commentary on Luke because yep. because it was just so well done. It was so concise, and I just like you know I I can't improve upon that. So I literally opened Sproul's comments on on Luke seventeen, and because he lands there too. Yeah. The, right, you know, honestly, in Luke twelve, he, he went he went different he went the other he yeah. went the other direction. So I disagreed with him on that. But this one, he he felt like it. Jesus was pointing to AD seventy, and he gave such a concise description of what actually mm-hmm. took place there that I thought, let's just read and, it. And he read he, he cited Josephus, yes. which which my wife Kristen was just <laughs> she she told me afterwards she's like I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. <laughs> But like she's actually read the Jewish Wars by Josephus. Wow! Um, and like Sproul actually, like he was so con- like obviously what he wrote was really really good. But like he, if he had added a couple of details from Josephus, like that, I think that would have even hammered home the point even harder. I, I agree. Of how uh, Josephus said that Jerusalem looked like a plowed field when the Romans were done, mm. and uh, and there's there's one account. And I, I'm pretty sure this is Josephus of um, basically everyone starving in the city because they're being besieged. Right. And these people are like, "Man, something smells good," and we're hungry. And they bust into this woman's house, and she has cooked her baby <laughs> mm. to eat the baby. Like, like you talk about <laughs> carnage. <laughs> I don't know if it gets more carnage than that. And, you know, like, and, and it's fascinating to think about, you know, the the mentions in Scripture of tribulation and great tribulation, mm-hmm. and think about that. I mean, that was something like the world had never seen before, yeah, and, and probably and hasn't, hasn't seen, seen since. since. There, there you go. There's Matthew 24. That was the great tribulation, and Luke 17, Luke 21, Mark 13, and then the book of Revelation, mm-hmm. which was 8070. <laughs> well, and, and you know, one of the things that Sproul said in his commentary, which I made mention of on Sunday was that 8070 is largely ignored by the contemporary church. Yeah. 
And you know, one of the recurring uh, comments that I've gotten after Sunday from several people mm-hmm. was people said in their own words, I have never considered the significance of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. You know, and it, mm-hmm. and I put a picture at the very beginning of the message, I put a picture of the Dome of the Rock up on the screen. And I put it up and I said, do you guys know what this is? And everybody went, oh, yes, the Dome of the Rock. Everybody mm-hmm. knows. Yep. And the whole church. But it was fascinating how many people said to me, I've never thought about mm-hmm. how significant that is, that this giant Islamic pimple is in the middle of Jerusalem yep. on the very site where the temple once stood, um, and how... Jews cannot offer sacrifice anymore. Right. That's it's amazing. Literally impossible, yeah. It's amazing to think about that, you know, Jesus brought an end to the temple order. He went into the Holy of Holies that was not a type and shadow mm-hmm. of, of the true Holy of Holies, presented his own blood, not the blood of goats and rams, and effectively in, ended the temple order and the sacrificial system, and I and eighty seventy is an ex- decisive exclamation point yeah. on that reality. And we've got a blue and gold Islamic shrine right on that yep. spot that yep. is reminding us of that. And let's say somehow, <laughs> somehow the Islamic world uh, loses enough influence not just in Israel, but in that entire region and in the world, that they tear that thing down so that they could put up a third temple. It would be just as blasphemous, if not more blasphemous, than the Dome of the Rock. I agree. Because like, you have the entire book of Hebrews about this, right? Yes. Of, of stop going back to that system. Mm-hmm. It's spitting in the face of Jesus on the cross. Yep, it was all I could do to stay out of Hebrews, I, oh, I, and I just, yeah. I just didn't have time. I mean, yeah. I, I, I went so slowly through this to try to make sure that I didn't confuse people, and a couple of people were confused, of, candidly, of course. Couple, uh, one of them, your uh, aunt, or, yeah. or your your uncle, I should yeah. say, yeah, which I mean, <clears throat> fair, like, fair. Let's, let's know, keep digging, right? Yeah, I, 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 I pray that I wouldn't be confusing. It, 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 well, especially. This topic has been so unnecessarily uh, made confusing in the last couple hundred years. Yep. Um, and, well, never mind. I'll hold that one. Um, but um, actually, I will go there. Even the Reformed Confessions, the Westminster in the 1689, I think get this wrong because mm-hmm. they call the Pope the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. But if you look at biblically the definition of the Antichrist, it's someone who preaches a different Christ. Yep. And the Roman Catholic Church, by definition, does not. No, they don't. They preach a different system of salvation, I agree a different with you. gospel, mm-hmm. but they just miss that one because they were so influenced at the time of being so fresh off of the Reformation, yep. uh, just barely a hundred years after. Yep. Um, and so that was unnecessarily confusing then. Mm-hmm. This is unnecessarily confusing now. Yep. To get back to your uh, point on being emphatic of, you know, I'm not trying to be super emphatic or dogmatic or anything, but you kind of were. <laughs> oh, I kind of was. Um, and, and let me say this. For the sake of people that I knew this was going to rattle their eschatological cages yes. to the point that – because I am basically saying everything that you've ever heard taught 
about these words from Jesus it's wrong. is wrong. <laughs> and there's there's two approaches you can take to that. It's you can back up, like to use the dump truck analogy, you can back up the dump dump truck of all of you are wrong. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes, sometimes that's needed. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it is. Uh other times, especially with topics that are held near and dear, mm-hmm. you introduce it slowly. Hey, look at this with me, yep. kind of thing. And this is what I noticed. You did the same thing years ago when you were introducing a reformed soteriology. Yeah, totally. Is Could it be that God actually is sovereign in salvation? Yep. And that he actually does regenerate us without our permission? Yep. That he doesn't need our permission for any of this? Because the notion of someone's free will in their salvation is held so tightly by so many people. And you got a, you probably got way more pushback on that than you ever will with this. No. Yeah. I had, I had people leave the church over that. Yeah. And, um, and, but you know, what's, what's true is that, and, and I think this is a right way to say it. Resurrection church has matured yeah. since we taught through Romans and has matured yeah. in our, in our soteriology to the point that, we don't have to make any apologies whatsoever for the fact that we believe God is sovereign over yeah. salvation. If, if you taught through Romans again, which would take another like 18 years, right? Mm-hmm. At, at, right at this pace, right, right. Um, you would be able to just plow through Romans 8 and 9 without qualifying so much. Yeah, yeah. But there were a lot of knots to untangle. And, uh, yeah. and I think with this, you know, th- the truth is, nobody's going to go to hell if they think Luke 17 or Matthew 24 are about the second coming. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one of the things that we are so passionately committed to at Res is not only teaching Scripture well, but equipping people to read Scripture well right. for themselves. And so in a, in a passage like that, I, I try to walk people through it the way that I'm walking through it and, and yeah. unlearning, you know, things that aren't necessarily true to the words that Jesus spoke myself. Because mm-hmm. one of the things I said on Sunday was, in, instead of us speculating about what Jesus might be saying, let's look at what he actually does say. And when you do that, that would be the other thing. Pretend you haven't heard or, or, or known or understood anything about a text when it's hard. You know, Any assumptions that you might come to the text with, try to shove those in a drawer somewhere and read with fresh eyes. The second thing I would say is, and it's very similar to the first, is don't speculate. Just pay attention to what's actually there. And mm-hmm. in, in, in the case of Luke 17, I just tried to look at it from the standpoint of what does Jesus definitely say? Yep. Not what does might he be saying? And, and one, of the, one of the things that... Uh, you've been harping on recently too, is for whose benefit is he saying or doing these things that he's saying or doing? And Luke makes it explicit. He turned to his disciples. Yeah. And so he was, he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. And he basically, he answered them. It's already here. It's already here. And then he says to his disciples, the stuff that we were, the days are coming. He turns his attention to them and says, the days are coming, which means those words are for their benefit. Yep. And what benefit would those words provide him if they provide them if he's speaking about events that are going to take place two or three thousand or more years after they're dead and gone? Yeah, that does, that makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I say 
it's okay. Not it's not double meaning, but mm-hmm. you can look at Luke seventeen and go, all right, this is why Jesus said this to them because AD seventy was coming within the next forty years, right? Right, which yep. is how Jews understood this generation. Yep, you know, so this was for their benefit. But there is a pattern, and I and here's where I ended was I said. Regardless of what you might think about Luke 17, I think the Bible is explicitly clear that we, in 2022, are in the last days. And the last days began at Pentecost in Acts 2, and and Peter quotes from the prophet Joel and says, this is what's happening in the last days. Mm -hmm. But but the prophet Joel also talks about that the last days, similar to... If you, if you take our interpretation of Luke 17, mm-hmm. the, the days of the Son of Man are leading to, pointing to the day of the Son of Man. Right. The last days, according to Joel 2 and Peter's reiteration of that at Pentecost, the last days are leading to and pointing to the great and magnificent day of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I think we're still in that span of time. And you know, your your buddy Doug Wilson talks about the overlap of the ages, <laughs> right? And yeah. I think there was an overlap yeah. that occurred. Wilson and Demar Gentry, etc. A lot of them, yeah. Yep. The, the overlap of the Temple Age with mm-hmm. Christ as the what should we say the, the 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 stake in the ground that in that effectively ended that yep. Temple Order. But it took another 40 years for the temple to come down. Mm-hmm. But the church age began 40 days, really, mm-hmm. after his resurrection when he ascended and then the Spirit right. was poured out. I think, I think some of that, we may need to refine some of our language because it can be confusing in, in some senses because I think some of the instances, not all of them in Scripture of in these last days, I think is probably the last days in that 40 years. It could be. Right. And and then so now we're in whatever this is, which last days leading up to the last day. Mm-hmm. Right. Totally agree. Yeah. Um but in terms of for the sake of not confusing people because a lot of people see in these last days and they immediately think, "Oh yeah, we're in the last days, get ready for etc cetera, etc." Cetera. Yeah. You know, ABC. Yeah. Um that wasn't what you were saying. No, no, no. On Sunday, though, and I, I mean, I, I can see where Doug Wilson gets with you know um, maybe the la- maybe Peter's quote of Joel two is about the last days of the temple and the 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 specific outpouring of the Spirit that occurred in the in the days of the early church. Right. I hear that, but I do think Joel two is bigger than that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think yeah. Peter's quote of that is bigger than that because. Yes. The, the the spirit has continued to be poured out. I mean, the, the, the spirit has continued to move in, in great and powerful ways. The kingdom is still breaking in in these last days. Because I do think what's ahead of us mm-hmm. is not another day of the Lord, which is followed by another set of days or span of time. Yeah. Um where the kingdom is only breaking in and we continue in a state of sin and imperfection and all that. I think we are in the days that are going to end 
with the coming of the Lord, right? The fulfillment of His kingdom and the eternal age, right? The eternal How, days. However, you think of pre mill, ah mill, post mill, exactly. Uh, the trajectory of history and things like that, like we can all agree, yeah, you, you have to mm-hmm. <laughs> creedally, <laughs> yes, and and orthodoxically, mm-hmm. if that's if that's a word, uh, you know, that's what we're waiting on. And I'm more than willing to admit the likes of Doug Wilson and and probably even Cody Fields have <laughs> a much better grasp of this, you know. Preterist, partial preterist um, kind of approach to these prophetic mm-hmm. utterances in the New Testament. Like, it, that's new territory for me. Yeah. And I'm going about it the same way I went about Calvinism and yep. Reformed soteriology, is that I'm just trying to read the Bible well. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and to be honest, and I'm not trying to laud myself, but the the ser- the sermon on sunday mm-hmm. was the product of me just sticking my nose in my bible right i didn't go to doug wilson yeah i leaned on a little bit of rc sproul but i don't even know that sproul would consider himself a partial preterist maybe I think to a certain he would. He, maybe I think he would, he would. Um, but e- either way i'm i i'm just trying to read the bible and 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 it's amazing it's really amazing when you just read the words that are there Yep, <laughs> how they start to come along. I was in how much? I was in a. Uh, I got invited to a pastor's luncheon mm-hmm. last week, and um, did I tell you about this? Somewhat. So I, I go, and it's a it, it's a it's a group of Baptist pastors, mm-hmm. and this particular group is a part of a, soci- a local Baptist association here, and this group is more of the reformed. Nine marks, uh, kind of bent. Yep, you did tell me about that part. Okay, so we're there, and the the we we ate, and then the there were some topics that were scheduled to be discussed. You mm-hmm. know, just really with the goal in mind that we could just help each other out, right? Like we here here's an issue we're facing. What does everybody think about it? And let's all weigh in on it. Maybe we'll glean stuff from each other. That was the the vibe, right? Yeah. Well, the first one that's brought up is biblical illiteracy. (laughs) We got problems with biblical illiteracy in the church, to which we all said, amen, that's right. Uh, Not like, so be it, but like, yes, we agree, that's that's a problem. Um, And it was fascinating to me, Cody. Every solution that was brought up to the problem of biblical illiteracy in the local church had nothing to do with actually having people open their Bibles and read them. Ooh. One guy said, I've recorded a 30-minute video on the big story of the Bible that I'm making all my small groups watch before they have discussion. Another guy said, yeah, we've got a, a library at church now or a table with a bunch of books on it about this theological topic, that theological topic, just trying to help people out. None of them, not, not one, mm. even remotely said anything about here's how we're encouraging and equipping people to actually open their Bibles and read them for themselves. And, and it's amazing what happens when you actually do that. Yep. <laughs> like, like, and, and this isn't us ripping on resources on theological training. Totally not. We've, I use them. Yeah, and we've, and we've had 
instances of that here in terms of, all right, what does the Bible say about this topic kind of thing Mm -hmm. with some theological training? I've brought, you know, I nerd out with my small group. (laughs) I'll bring in the Apostles' Creed or whatever. And, uh, but what's the primary? Mm Mm-hmm. What what's the root? What's the basis? What's the foundation? It has to be scripture, and if you can't handle that well, you're in for a bad time in your church. Yeah, and I and I again, your your main topic here has been like, how do you handle tough text? And so far, what I've said is try to read with fresh eyes. Um, number two is just methodically pay attention to the words that are there, and I would say also you. You just don't want to lean too heavily, especially when you're wrestling with a tough text, mm-hmm. on the assumptions and comments of others on that text. Because then what you're getting is you're getting, before you've wrestled with it, you're getting someone else's opinion, which might be good and might be right and might be helpful. But I try to not go to the commentaries until I, I just try to apply what Martin Luther said. John, you should appreciate this. <laughs> I beat on text until they yield their water. Yep. And I feel like, honestly, I feel like that's what I had to do last week um, with Luke 17. You just had just, to slap it a few more times. Just had to keep beating on it until I started to see how the things connect and, and, and the flow of thought for Jesus as he's talking with his disciples. And yeah, you can go listen to the Res Faith podcast and hear where we landed yeah just don't listen to the live stream i was not good on guitar in that first service which is the one we live stream so i didn't i didn't notice but good it was the mix was fantastic sunday fantastic good i think it was crystal this week shout out to crystal yeah, Jones shout out to crystal Jones. uh but yeah like that that little run on all my ways there's like a do in the chorus and I would, I was just locking up on that slide, and it, oh, yeah. and it, and it <laughs> kind of sounded like I stepped on a cat. But you know, yeah. well, Inquisition, sure. And this is the Inquisition. You ask us questions, we answer them on the fly, and you can submit those via the weekly post in the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast. Now, there's 321 of us at this point. Come join the fun. As is tradition, we start with Brian Morris, <laughs> and he asks, are phrases like Judas 8-2 just a corrupted version of main character syndrome? <laughs> so I'm assuming he means by main character syndrome, uh, inserting yourself into biblical narratives as if you're the hero, or even the villain in this case. <laughs> Uh, with the Judas 8-2 mantra that goes around of, oh, Jesus loved him so much, and he knew what he was going to do, and he still washed his feet, and he still ate with him, and all that kind of stuff. I would say yes. I would agree. I I think it's kind of a silly phrase, honestly. It is, and it's a gross oversimplification of what's going on there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, From across the pond, Ferentz Zindley and I'm pretty sure I pronounced his name right this time. You're welcome. Uh, he asks if, stemming from our recent series on the doctrines of grace, if Jesus only atoned for the elect, why should we go and share the gospel if the elect will be saved anyway? Hmm. Well, I, I think we've addressed this topic before. We have. Um, but, but it's good to go over it it's again. It's good to go over it again. Um, it, 
the, the simplest answer is that God, God is the God who not only intends the end, but the means. Um, and the Bible, you know, particularly the epistles, there, there's many times where <laughs> the, you know, Paul talks about the foolishness of preaching, right? Um, it, it's, there is this, this means by which God has determined to save people, yep. and that's through human agency proclaiming the gospel. So Jesus says to his apostles before his ascension, yes, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey, baptizing them, etc. But before that, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go. So I think knowing that God is sovereign, knowing that Christ's death atoned for the elect means I, I go with all the more confidence, all the more uh, sense of urgency, all the more sense of um, just it's it's not about me and it's not about the, the cleverness of my presentation. I just proclaim the good news and God uses that as the means by which he will draw those whom he's chosen to save. And yep. I think that's that's the essence is God has determined the means. And Farrick, you are a means by which God will save some. There you go. It's it's kind of like the uh, the old question of if God's sovereign, then why pray? Uh, where we would say if God isn't sovereign, why would you pray? Because he can't really do anything anyway. Exactly. But if he is sovereign, why wouldn't you pray? Because that would then mean that your prayers are the means by which he has decreed that he will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Yeah. Uh, I, if I, rem I don't remember if I might be citing this poorly, uh, I think it was John Calvin who, who basically said, do you want to know what the future looks like? What are you praying about? Yeah. Look at what you're praying for. Yeah. That's what the future looks like. Yeah. If you're not praying about anything, the future doesn't look like a whole lot. <laughs> you know, there, there, are, there are 12 different words that the New Testament uses for prayer. Mm -hmm. um, not all of them are translated pray or prayer, but there are 12 different words. Uh, there, there's a lot of different facets to praying, mm -hmm. but one of those words is literally the posture of, Lord, what are you doing about fill in the blank? Mm -hmm. What are you up to? What do you want? And, I, and I'm going to tell you, it has been such a sweet thing to lean into in my own prayer life um, where I just find myself more often than not. Even in that pastor's luncheon last week, mm -hmm. I'm asking the Lord, why am I here? Yeah. What are you doing? What do I need to do? Um, I got called to pray for uh, a little 13-year-old girl who was having serious health issues and was in the hospital that was a, a family member of one of our families here at Res. And on the way to the hospital, I'm saying, Lord, why am I going? Mm -hmm. what, did, what would you have me pray when I get there? Because yeah. I don't want to just go in there and pray generic prayers. I want to pray in accordance with what you're up to in this family and specifically in this little girl's life. How would you have me pray? Lead me to pray in accordance with what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And that is such a sweet posture of prayer. And, and I think you remove God's sovereignty from that. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing to fill that void. Yeah. But if he is sovereign... 
I, I can know my prayers are a means by which he's accomplishing his purpose. Yeah, good stuff. All right, last question. We'll keep this one anonymous, but it's a friend we haven't heard from in a while. So welcome back. Uh, so he has an elder at his church. His church is reformed, and obviously the elder is. And so basically the uh, the adjectives he uses for this elder is reformed, historic pre-mill, generally Republican, and a boomer, <laughs> right? Okay. I, don't, I don't think he's trying to be insulting. It's yeah. just factual, right? And so our friend says this guy is otherwise chill until things like postmillennialism and theonomy come up, mm. and then uh, you get, you know, all kinds of rabid straw mans, ad hominems, uh, raised voice, flushed face. Boy, howdy! He said it's weird because. He's fine with adopting some of our friends' ideas for the church. He's made him a Sunday school teacher for young adults and has encouraged him to become an elder. But at the same time, he despises part of his theology enough to regularly berate him for it. Mm. And it's thrown a serious wrench into the relationship because he doesn't know what uh, he doesn't know what sets him off. Um, and so it seems like he can't even talk to him anymore if he wants to preserve the peace. Mm. Meanwhile, he likes to talk politics, and it's a conversation where our friend can only really say yes and okay or shrug without causing an issue because he's a theonomist and postmillennialist, which means that you have some different conclusions. Mm -hmm. So what now? <laughs> well, I, I think... I think there are times when doctrine must be prioritized over and above relational dynamics and fellowship and right. unity. Right. Uh, there, in other words, there are times for us to be divided. Yes. But then there are times to lay aside doctrinal uh, differences on secondary issues. Mm-hmm. And focus on the relational fellowship piece. Yes. You know, how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Yep. You know, we contend for unity. And what you've got here, I think, are largely secondary issues, uh, not insignificant issues as it relates mm -hmm. to biblical interpretation, but they're secondary issues um, and they're causing. They're causing a fracture in the peace and the unity, at least among those two brothers, and perhaps more. Right. And because it all connects together. It all connects together. And the politics side of things, it, it you know, I, I would separate that from the pre mill, post mill stuff in terms of importance as well. But nevertheless, if there's a if there's an issue of, you know, relational uh, fracture and, and division, then I think that needs to be prioritized. A, a foundation mm -hmm. and a culture needs to be set where we can have healthy conversations about these things. Right. Because I, I think there should be room in the church to wrestle with text and have healthy debate, particularly when it comes to the end of things mm -hmm. and, and how we interpret certain passages. Well, I, you know, I, I'm a little less tolerant of that still somewhat tolerant of it when it comes to soteriology mm -hmm. but particularly on the 
eschatological side, I think you got to have room for like you and I have great conversations. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and and we still differ on a lot of things, even though I'm probably inching ever closer to post millennialism. Yeah. So it's it's a there should be room for that in the church, and it's sad to me that this guy's getting flushed in the face and raising his voice, and 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 people are even at least this person that asked the question is afraid to even broach the subject with him. Mm-hmm. That's not good. That's not healthy. That's yeah. a bigger issue. Yeah. Um. And and apart from the relational thing, it's I have found uh, even just in my own becoming post millennial and theonomic um, that. Man, people like to misrepresent those positions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's incredible to me how often those positions are misrepresented. Um, whether it's by NBC, I don't know if you saw that with Wilson being interviewed by Meet the Press. Your dad was telling me about it. It was hilarious. Yeah, your dad was um, telling me about it this morning. But whether it's that or whether it's even like the Westminster Seminary guys trying to refute the theonomists in the 70s and 80s and them responding with, you didn't represent us correctly at all right? kind of thing. Um, and so maybe our friend needs to ask, hey, when when I say this, what do you think I mean? And, and that could be a, a, That's a, a, great point. A, a way toward restoring that relationship of making sure, like, what do you think I mean when I say this? Because I'm sure you had a lot of that go on with, uh, with starting to preach a Calvinistic soteriology of mm-hmm. wait, wait, wait. All right. You're hearing predestination and uh, assuming a lot of things. What do you think I mean? <laughs> I had that conversation no so less many than times. 20 times. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's a great point, Cody. I think yeah, that's yeah. a way in which the relational piece could be emphasized mm-hmm. in, in saying, Hey, let's make sure we're talking about the same things because you matter to me more than, Mm-hmm. Being right on this particular issue, right. um, let's let's make sure we're clear. Um, and then if if we are, and there's still that tension, then I think you know you might need to think about involving some of the other elders or or you know others leaders in the church to just sort of help. I don't know. Maybe this guy's got an anger issue. He could. Yeah. I mean, there could be all kinds of things going on there. Yeah. Good stuff. Lots of ground cover today. That was fun. Lots of fun. Uh, so make sure you come back next week for episode 200. So thanks for listening to the Westminster Effects Oxology Podcast. Go love God, love your neighbor, makes music. We'll see you next time.